0: This is podcast 121, entitled Hold That Ghost, and it is a... um, hopefully succinct and hopefully most personally felt meditation on the meaning and the impact and the substance, you might call it, the intangible, impalpable, and yet um, absolutely requisite substance of freedom in its relation to love. Now, just so you know, the preludial music written by a uh, An English composer called Alan Hawkshaw is uh, a section of his uh, accompanying music to an episode of a wonderful English horror anthology movie produced by Amicus entitled The Monster Club. It's notorious for its incredibly shoddy costumes, or shall I say um, masks, in the disco sections of the wraparound story to this movie called The Monster Club, which has John Carradine and Vincent Price surrounding a um, group of three stories, one of which the middle one is weak, the first one of which with Simon Ward and that other wonderful tall English actress is excellent, but the third with an American actor Stuart Whitman and Patrick McGee and unbelievably well done. Um, filters on the cameras about the haunted village is really a masterpiece. The movie, you'll roll your eyes uh, and have to give an awful lot of ground to PZ's eccentricities. But the movie, The Monster Club, the last episode, is worth it. And Hawkshore's little uh, frantic um, synthesizer section that I just played is... uh, entitled Ghouls Galore, and the title of the podcast from which the preludial music is uh, connected is um, Hold That Ghost, and uh, you all remember that is a reference to an Abbott and Costello movie, not very good, from 1941 by Universal Pictures when they were trying to connect the uh, antics of Abbott and Costello with horror themes. Quite successfully, if Cherry Garcia is to be believed, and I think he is with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but um, in a rather delightful way in a movie called Hold That Ghost from 1941 with a number of the same universal theme people and designers, especially the uh, appearance of the rather high spirited and definitely non-sexy, but pretty actress, Evelyn Ankers, who moved in and out of a host of these movies. But Hold That Ghost is a fabulous title. It should be a title for all time, because it is something about freedom. Now, why did I give you that information about Hawkshaw and the Monster Club, followed by an Abbott and Costello movie from 1941 that probably you may well never have seen, let alone heard of, although it is available on DVD? I hesitate to add or I rush to add, Uh, but because the title has been with me for the last few weeks and this gave me emotional time for you to kind of cue into some new material and cue out maybe, but the real um, meaning of the podcast is or concerns the elusive nature of freedom. And I would like to give, you might say, a little lesson in historical theology here, which is also a lesson in the human dynamics of the psychological breakdown of the human will, and then apply it to uh, the um, daily life and the very rare popping out and incursion of actual freedom in the world, especially in relationships, which is where it always is most acutely modeled, shall I say expressed, or shall I say scuttled. And then uh, just talk again about the intangible character. of it. Hold that ghost! This is not something that you can bottle. It's not a substance. It's not a material thing. It doesn't have an ontological essence. It is a phantom. And yet, for that very reason, it is more real than anything else you can imagine. And when you connect it <clears throat> with the um, reality of one's powerful, true self, to coin a phrase, You have the existence of love, and love that must inevitably, in order to be love, not be coming from a place of obligation, but from a place of... uh of desire. And uh, I will also have a PS here about the nature of Christianity, which has simply got to change, not in the um, sense that people who are radically on the theological ideological left want to say that it's a matter of structures, it's a matter of various issues, all of which may be related to this, but it really does have to change in a sort of Maxim Gorky sense, and I'll talk about that in a minute. It's got to change in the core essence of it, which is the essence of graceful loving and love that is not derived from fear or even connected with fear, but love that is a free will action. And then Christianity, and that is the core meaning of the um, word and message of the rabbi Jesus, which is how my friend Lloyd Fonville, the rabbi Jeshua bar Joseph, wants to refer to him only because he wants to take it out of the realm of the traditional wording which falls like lead weights today and in light of so many developments in our world this is absolutely essential I no longer feel the need to sort of proselytize for a point of view or to go out there on a big heavy agenda to try to wreak changes in the church of the world or the mindset and attitudes of the world but I I do know for myself that I can say that until um, the core message the message of grace which is not appended to results or consequences or even potential putative possibilities until that... Uh, comes back into its own. There's really no hope for the Christian Church, save for Roman Catholicism, which will, because of its ecclesiological stability, that is by comparison with all other expressions of Christianity, there will always be a market for the Roman Catholic Church. And there will probably be a sense in which Roman Catholicism is the, quote, last man standing, end of quote, after all the shuffles of the current age, vis-a-vis liberal, middle of the road, evangelical, and other forms of Christianity. But I don't think that's ultimately the place where the world will finally and fully be affected by a message of love that is not hinged to consequence. I believe it has to be a more thoroughgoing and ultimate um, alteration, which is really just a return. It's actually a conserving thing, a conservative thing, in the sense that it's the famous return to the origo, the odd fontes, the fountains. Now, let's just talk about where we were and why ghosts are such an impossibility to hold, and yet it is a ghost. Hold that ghost. Now, Augusta, this, um, y'all. No, if you follow this kind of thinking, and there's no reason why you should, uh, said famously, and it was picked up very much in the Reformation and also by the Jansenists hot August night, Augustine said that there are three sort of stages on the road to freedom, and these three stages are developmentally um, reproduced in all spiritual progress. And I think there's a great deal to it, but I no longer um, – I, I think it sounds when it's presented as a form of stacking the deck. It is not, in fact. It is far more descriptive in the third phase. But let's talk about this under the rubric of the ghost. The ghost is love that is free. It is the intangible, miraculous, um, immaterial, spiritual, and yet utterly real – to quote, heard the real situation, character of that which is most enduring, lasting, and finally um, oh, it lasts beyond death. And all great thinkers and knowers and poets and literary um, inspired folk have known this, including all religious people. And all human beings know it. Forster knew it. Now, the first stage according to Augustine is that Human being is not free not to sin. this to use the language of the Reformation is an expression of the fact that, in the initial situation, a human being, when confronted with what he ought to do and uh, will inevitably because it 's an ought choose the opposite so whenever uh, you know our, we are in fact, according to augustine, not, we are we are not free not to sin, uh, in other words, uh, we are um, We cannot control ourselves. This is because the whole question of what is right and good almost inevitably comes initially to us in the form of some kind of demand or requirement. And people are so wired and are so created that they always go the opposite of whatever they are asked or invited to do. And this is where almost all um, kind of uh, action that is anti-authoritarian finds its very natural basis that human beings are not free not to sin. I won't go further into the law, but that's what Augustine said, and the Reformation picked it up. So, we are, in a sense, in a bondage when we are faced with what we ought to do and what we want to do, especially if the word ought is underlined. We will, especially if it comes to us from an external authority, we will always. Choose what we ought not to do. So we are not free not to sin. This is what Augustine taught, and it has to do with what is often called the the lack of freedom that people so often discover to their horror. Rationally, we think we're free, but when it comes down to all sorts of certain kinds of things, especially we see this in addiction, of any kind. We are actually tyrannized and controlled by forces that are beyond our control. He then said the second um, sort of attempt, uh, the first attempt to get out of stage one is stage two, where we are trying to be free not to sin. And this is where life becomes a kind of arduous conflict structure, as I've often said before in the podcast, in which you're simply trying to do what you believe is the right thing. You're trying to do that which is... Right uh, and good as you see it, so you try to be a faithful uh, partner or spouse. you try to be a um, a non drinking man <laughs> in your middle age. You try to kick the habit of, of cigarettes or some other habit. you fill in the blanks, you try to uh, control your anger you. Try with all your might to crawl out of a hole of tremendous depression and frustration. You try to get your appetite under control or your compensatory need to eat. I mean, what is the number one problem for clergy in actuality? In practice, it is overeating. You will, a a thin clergyman, uh, I, I use the word advisedly, is hard to find. And usually when you do find such a person, it's a person who is throwing themselves in a compulsive way into some form of exercise are jogging. Um, We know someone, a lovely friend of ours who he jogs at three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, this wonderful man has kept his weight down. But he's thrown himself into it. It's very striking. But with most clergy, they give up um, and uh, uh, they can't do this, that, and the other form of quote sin end of quote. But what they can do and be forgiven for it is eat. So you'll find that the besetting kind of uh, sin, especially of uh, of Protestant evangelical clergy, but of clergy in general, is obesity. Um, but I have to say, I was in a restaurant in Boston. Recently, actually, very nice restaurant, which we'd been recommended. A really Fashionable restaurant. And I saw some very well dressed Roman Catholic uh, priests. They were identified by the waiter as Roman Catholic priests. And they were, boy, they were having a great time, uh, not in drink, but in the food. And you could tell. Now, free not to sin, uh, according to Augustine and the reformers, almost always fails because we are, in fact, not free. We're actually not free not to sin. So our attempts to be free not to sin are sort of hollow and they're all based on moral exertion. And we get tired and we kind of blow out. It's a powerful fact that the diet that I've been on recently has a great kind of um, escape hatch because this particular uh, diet, uh, which uh, is to try to help men, especially with their paunches, and it did help me. Uh, It is still helping me. It's based on the idea that one day in seven, you take a Sabbath from the diet, you have a blowout, you go have a huge pizza, and you fool your digestive system so that the fires of uh, digestion go up again, and then you go back to the diet, and for three days at least, you're burning up uh, sugar snap peas and hummus uh, because you fooled the uh, uh, Tommy into thinking that it was digesting a pizza because you took a break. Well, isn't that interesting? free not to sin, and Augustine said this is what sort of many great saints and ascetics have tried to do, and they've usually failed, and you remember the story about uh, about the failed priest, but he fails in a most interesting way, in a most real incredible way by Tolstoy entitled Father Sergius is the case in point here. But you'll also see a doctrinally orthodox and horrible, corpulent clergyman who just loves to eat uh, the Reverend John Broad in Mark Rutherford's wonderful book, Revolution in Tanner's Lane. Now, the third stage, according to Augustine, which is when your fears are laid to rest and when the law is laid to rest by the forgiveness and mercy of Christ made palpable, tangible, historical, and empirical in the atonement of Christ on the cross, this is the argument. Whatever it's tied to, let us simply send, it is supposed to result in, that is to say, a Christian's belief or understanding, or let's put it in a more proper way, grasp existentially and empirically that he or she is no longer under the force of the the anvil of law, uh, creates a person who is no longer having to react against demand or requirement, and is now actually f- free in such a way that that person is not free to sin. Now, did you get that? That's the third phase. If the first was not free not to sin, and the second was a kind of uh, exerted, arduous labor with the intention of becoming free not to sin. The third, once the labor is ended and we're no longer in the dualistic power structure of a conflict or, or or conflict structure of a constant struggle against our own nature, when that has been laid to rest through mercy and forgiveness, we then become, so goes the argument, not free to sin. Well, that is very, very interesting. And uh, I... Uh, I want to uh, talk about that a little bit. Now, what I find, the trouble with that when it's expressed to the world, and I used to not believe this, but I now see it, partly because I'm not in the world of the church. I, I, as a retired um, uh, priest or minister, as I would prefer to say, I'm uh, really not quite in it so much, and this has been a great opportunity for me to reflect on things that I taught over many years and believe and have been life-giving. And yet, nevertheless, now, because I saw some problems in my own life and experience in relationship to aspects of them, I guess I feel able now to sort of um, look at them afresh and sort of, well, reinterpret not quite the word, but but re, re-access, re-access some of these great um, uh, observations. And what um, Augustine meant was that um, when you are... Um, actually have real freedom, which is freedom that is not from fear, then you are free actually to sin, quote, end of quote, or not to sin. In other words, freedom is really a situation where you're no longer um, under duress, and therefore you're at peace. Uh, One person would say that you are free to care and not to care, you you are both free or you are, because there is no punishment, there is no fear of punishment. And this is what the Bible is all about in the New Testament, at least, and and certainly in aspects of the old. The, the human being finally before God is someone who has understood that God is a good God. And therefore, um, there is not a judgment at the end of the corridor. Remember that. Terribly powerful story. Uh, I believe it's by Kipling. I think it's called The End of the Corridor. Or is it The End of the Hall? It's uh, it's about a, a death as judgment that comes at the end of the corridor to some, to some very, very hot, drought-covered, poor, bachelor, English civil servants in a field station in India. Now, what really happens is when the burden of judgment, when the burden of a specific... Uh, um, requirement is removed, then you are in fact free to, quote, sin or not to sin, because sin is lost, in a sense, its moral judgment or sting at the end of it. So you are free. Now, what I would say happens, because uh, the blessing catches you, and ultimately Reality, capital R, God, is benign that is a a uh, a maxim that i would say i do not see god as malevolent i do not see god as fundamentally unmerciful i see god as enigmatic and mysterious in a huge number of cases but my personal experience continues to be that whatever (laughs) governs the nature of reality the mystery of all that is happening in us through us to us and around us that ultimately he has plans for good and not for ill that's a great passage he 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 hath plans for you for good and not for ill i would say that's a maxim that is based i can say that notwithstanding tremendous even the things that have happened to me and there are many just like with you that have been negative i now am able to see and actually believe seeing see from my heart all in all were intended for my good i see that now i can honestly see that um and somebody said a long time ago that a place where i'd become where i had been so terribly um attacked and damaged would one day I would thank God for it. And I said, Oh yeah, you and my old man, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. And I now find that that man, who said it one day you'll be able to thank God for this particular situation. I thank God regularly for that particular situation. And that's, you know, years after the event. So I can uh, uh, witness from my spirit if you need a witness, you got me. But when you are, uh, when the moral judgment is taken away, which is what Christianity claims has happened in the ministry, death, and finally the um, Easter vision of uh, of God as a an alive God on Easter, uh, a good and alive God, then uh, you know who forgives more than seventy times seven. Um, Then when you're free both to, quote, sin and not to sin, what you actually find yourself doing is you act in consonance with this benign character of reality. And for the most part, you find that what you do in hindsight actually looks like what, say, the New Testament might have said is righteousness. The word righteousness is, is a terrible, as Kerouac said, righteousness as a motivation is sphere two of the human being when you try to be free not to sin. But take righteousness out of the equation as a motivation, and you find that the very things you do, in fact, the things you, you do get more joyful. You do get more patient. You do get more continent. You do get more loving. You do get more chaste, if I use that word, in the full, broad sense of the word. You do get more pure. A friend of mine is always using the word purity with great positive purity as in the beautiful voice of a, of the little child who sings uh, remember the uh, paraguayan uh, guanari indian child who sings a beautiful uh, solo before the papal ambassador in uh, in the movie the mission da 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 la da 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 well um so what you find descriptively when you look back upon your own ability because the judgment has been taken out where you are free to care and not to care, or to sin or not to sin, what actually happens because of the nature of God is a good God. That's a wonderful steel guitar song that I love so much by Josh Taylor, who I think is from Florida originally. But um, you, you find that what you actually did does in fact reflect what, say, St. Paul talks about as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, understanding, kindness, compassion. And uh, so it's not really a moral choice, but what you did, in fact, was, in fact, those things which are basically of light. And if you fell or you fell over or you got really drunk one night or you did this or that or the other thing or you succumbed to a temptation, well, you, you find often that when the judgment is less, you, you, know, you may do it uh, twice, but you may not do it five times. Or you may do it four times, but then you stop, and you and then two years have passed, and you haven't done it one more time, even after you did it four times. Uh, This is the uh, power of what it really means when it says not free to sin. I would say this: we are not free not to sin because of the because of the whole question of judgment. When judgment uh, and and when we respond to judgment and requirement uh, by trying to be free not to sin, we're we're, we, 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 we fail or we become incredibly judge, judgmental. You know, well, I don't think that, you know, or when such and such happens, somebody else says, well, I don't have that kind of a problem. I, you know, you have a married couple and one guy saying, I'm just in the lowest of the low. I can't tell you how depressed and angry and upset I am and I can't possibly get out of this hole. And then the other person says, well, you know, um, I've had these experiences too, but I didn't da da, da 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 Or don't you see, but I didn't succumb the way you did. So when you're free not to sin or trying to be, then you inevitably become fair say whether you mean to or not, and whether you use the word or not, you become basically self-righteous in some form or another. And that's not just a problem with the the church or Christians or religious people. That's a problem with Republicans and Democrats. And that's a problem with uh, any kind of partisans, you know, who become self-righteous. They, they find that uh, because they have uh, come to this position, they are unable to um, identify with the person that hasn't come to that position. And then they become highly judgmental. And so uh, it fails in any event. And then as we, my Friend Lloyd often says, "People who the, the people who shout the most about this or that kind of sin, the people who who come across as most self righteous and determined to, to to say that they're right and everybody else is wrong, especially in regard to, you know, conventional sins of the body or the flesh, are inevitably are found out that they're hiding something. It's in complete degree to their uh, rancor and their vitriol and often their volume that the." actual problem is being quashed and suppressed. And boy, do I have, <laughs> I can give you chapter and verse on that in in everybody I know and in myself, and it's a, it's a humbling thought. So what really we come to when the judgment is taken out of the equation is, you know, you're free to do this or not. I'm constantly in a situation where, you know, in, instead of needing to do something to please, say, a person that I live with or love, when I come to the point when I really am, in a sense, pleasing myself, but with transparency, when I'm pleasing myself really without uh, judgment, I inevitably do or almost inevitably do that thing which is construed by the other person as being loving. Uh, the very freedom from fear turns into a freedom to love. It happens all the time. I want to close by giving you an example. I've, um, I, I do very much want to recommend that everyone listening to this podcast r- run and not walk to get copies. They're out of print, but you can find them. That You can find them. Easily uh, at almost any used bookstore, and certainly on the internet. Nice 1970s crisp movie tie-in paperbacks. Read the last three of Galsworthy's novels: the one that is called um, the one that is called Made in Waiting, M A I D, and Flowering Wilderness, and One More River and read these three uh, run don't walk as pictures of salvation and hope in a uh, very uh, interesting and disappeared environment of sort of english educated upper uh, class life which is simply one subset it could be hispanic barrio life interestingly enough because take away the the uh, take away the social setting and you have the deepest uh, most struggling uh, self-sabotage in individuals and the rare example of enduring and forgiving love and the most credible picture of an actual person's, that is a couple of people who actually are in the truest and deepest sense of the word, were lost but now are found, each in his own and her own way, which is entirely credible, both tragic and uplifting and ennobling, and I can't tell you how much, but when you have a chance, also... Uh, rent the Criterion, or buy, it's on sale this week, um, but buy the Criterion, um, uh, but rent it easy, uh, of Akira Kurosawa's uh, film version of uh, The Lower Depths. I don't have the year, I I have the movie, but not the year. I, I, I know it's the late 50s, um, very early 60s, but um, The Lower Depths, the Play by Maxim Gorky, which I'm holding in my hand. I hold in my hand a letter from Herr Hitler. I've got uh, that's beyond the fringe. Thank you, Bill Bowman. I've got a um, Maxim Gorky's play, and I've seen it in Japanese, and the Japanese version, which is brilliant and beautiful, and takes some doing to watch. It's, it's Japanese in the sort of 19th century. Uh, early Japanese, Edo period, and it's very talky. And it's simply the Gorky play translated into Japanese with almost no change. It's exactly what Gorky wrote, translated, but and stagey, but cinematic also. But if you stay through, you'll see a character, and I'm not going to give away the ending, obviously, but it's dark and heavy and real. But Gorky's masterpiece of a play which Von Harnack said was uh, the quintessential Marcionite drama. Now, take that and think about it, and don't worry about that. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, and if it means being called a Marcionite, I'd rather be with the main character, Luca, the pilgrim in, uh, in The Lower Depths by Maxim Gorky, also... Akira Kurosawa. I'd rather be there than in the kind of discredited Christianity, which has ruled and is now really the tide is going out on, certainly electorally. And uh, there is something very powerful in the play because you have a, uh, a figure, a religious man, a Franciscan, you could call him. Gorky had tremendous sympathies with communism and the Soviet Revolution, and he was the darling of the Bolsheviks and the Russian, communist Russian culture. He had been a friend of, um, a very critical friend of Tolstoy's, and he wrote a lot. But The Lower Depths, uh, I'll just simply say it, has one character of a very broken, wonderful 60-year-old priest. You can really identify with him. He is the pure, graceful presence. His words of comfort and hope, occasionally a little tongue-in-cheek because he's very, very smart and s- sees everything. You have an ideal parish priest or minister in um Maxim Gorky's play. But see it in the Kurosawa version because um, it's played by an actor who Kurosawa often used who at first I thought was miscast because of his almost overly expressive, rather clown-like facial features. But in fact, it, as Mary pointed out, it works perfectly. He he, he almost needs to have a clown-like um, plastic, um, odd um, face. But you'll see the, um, the power of the character, uh, the priest Luca, in the play and the pilgrim, his whole approach as a man who's been truly humbled and is therefore able to actually be the presence of a non judgmental, not just a, a listening, uh, but, but a non condemning, non judgmental presence, who is also has a, a little tie in to God. I mean, he's, he's, he's a pilgrim, he's a spiritual man, he's not, he's not a secular man. He, and people respect the fact that he is a Buddhist pilgrim or a Franciscan, if you wanted to put it in the original he is he is a whether he's a tolstoyan pilgrim like the man on the boat in the resurrection or the what happens to father sergius which i think he is because uh, gorky was right around tolstoy when resurrection was being implanted in the ground um i think he is that man i th- now it just came to me he is the he is the elusive man on the ferry in resurrection and the who in the prison at the end and the remarkable uh, turning of father sergius and here he comes here comes tolstoy into the tolstoy was a man on the ferry boat and he comes in and his words and his ministry are astonishing and he gives them all and they don't take it because they're at the low end of human despair one or two of them do he uh, really allows them through his lack of judgment to be free not to sin or to sin and some of them go one way and some of them the other and i recommend it so see the lower depths now you've heard what i've had to say i'm going to cut off now but with joy um hold that ghost that ghost is something that when you find it, a non-condemned uh, attitude or receipt, an attitude received that is not based on judgment and criticism, what happens is astonishing. So if I can quote Bud Abbott and Lucas Costello and finish with uh, something you'll immediately recognize, let's simply say this at the end of podcast 121. Hold that ghost. All